If I was to ask you this morning to give me one word that describes the resurrection of Jesus Christ, one word that describes the resurrection, what word would come to mind for you this morning? You know, when, when we historically within the church have said, He is risen, the response anticipated is always, He is risen indeed. But was that response of the early, was that the response of the early church to the claims of the resurrection? When Mary and Joanna and the other ladies came back to the disciples and said, He is risen, what was their response? Their response was, Unimaginable and unbelievable. Unimaginable and unbelievable. This morning I want to discuss the resurrection of Christ from an account in Luke chapter 24. I'd like you to turn there with me. Luke chapter 24 and verses 1 through 12, which Pam has just so beautifully read for us. And I want to argue from this text that for the early followers of Christ... The resurrection accounts were unimaginable and unbelievable, and yet they transformed the early first century world. Accounts that were unimaginable and unbelievable, and yet transformed the early disciples. Now, we can say this this morning, that there are, in relationship to Jesus, four facts that are historically undeniable. Okay, four facts that are historically undeniable. And if you check this out amongst scholars more broadly today, you will find these to be true. The first one is this. Jesus Christ lived. Second fact that is historically undeniable is Jesus Christ died. Third, Jesus Christ was buried in a grave. And what's the fourth? Okay, historically undeniable fact is what now we're all saying Jesus rose from the dead okay I can guarantee you something in the world that you and I live in the resurrection of Christ is as unbelievable and unimaginable as it was in the first century when people came and said he is risen the response of the crowd was unbelief the fourth undeniable fact Historically, however, is this. The disciples of Jesus Christ believed what? That he had risen from the dead. Okay? So, he lived, he died, he was buried, and his disciples believed in a life-transforming, life-altering way that he was no longer dead, but was in fact a risen Lord and Savior, worthy of all of their service. Okay, those are the historically undeniable facts in relationship to the resurrection of Christ. Now, Luke 24, 1-12 gives us the first post-resurrection story. Okay, the first narrative historical account about the resurrection of Christ. And what I want to do this morning is deal with three issues. One is this biblical account of the resurrection. Then I want to ask two questions. Does it matter if Jesus rose from the dead? Does it matter to the church? And then secondly, if he did rise from the dead, what would the impact of that truth be upon the early believers? Okay, what would the impact of that truth? So let's first of all look at this narrative account of the resurrection of Christ. And I want to establish one thing as we begin going into this. 
these ladies, verse 1, are coming to the tomb. And by the way, if you read through the gospel accounts, you will find that the, the first people in every gospel to find that Jesus Christ is no longer in the tomb is women. Okay? Now, in our culture, testimony from women would be acceptable, plausible, and believable. But in the first century world, if you were trying to put off a lie, a hoax, you would not say that the first witnesses to the resurrection of Christ were women. Why? Because in the Greco-Roman world, the testimony of women was not even permissible in the setting of a courtroom. They were ruled unreliable in that setting. Thank God we don't live in that kind of a world. But it's fascinating that when you go into all of the accounts of the resurrection, the first account of the resurrection is always from the lips of women, which argues what? If they're trying to fabricate an account about the resurrection that would be historically plausible and believable in that setting, would you say that women were the first witnesses? The answer, obviously, from a historical perspective, is no. Not in the first century world. So, women go to the tomb. Why are they going there? Verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. What was the purpose of these spices? The purpose of the spices was to finish the preparation of the body of Christ for long-term burial. And what does that tell you? The followers of Christ knew that he was dead. Go to verse 55 of chapter 23. The women had come with Jesus from Galilee. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Okay, what was certain for these women? Jesus Christ was a dead man. Their hearts were broken by it, but they were convinced they knew, the disciples knew. That's why they're locked in an upper room for fear of the Jews at that time. Okay, so first thing we know, the followers of Christ know that he is dead. One writer describing this account said, they came to make sure that the body had been adequately prepared for burial, not to welcome the risen Lord with the rendition of the Hallelujah Chorus. And, and you, you start to understand that as you read this account, don't you? They're baffled when they find the tomb empty. Second thing that emerges from this text. The prophecies about the resurrection that came from the lips of Jesus were unbelievable to the hearers. Okay, when Mary, when the disciples, when Joanna and the others heard Jesus say on numerous occasions, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem, they will crucify him on the third day, he will rise again. What do you think their response was to that? Oh yeah, you can do that. No. Their response was a response of disbelief and a response of protest. Why? Because his prophecies concerning his resurrection to the early hearers were unbelievable. Notice this text then, verse 2. When they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, or, I'm sorry, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they, what? Did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And they wondered at this. They were perplexed by it. You know, the early understanding of the followers of Christ was, and the question they started to ask was, where did they put the body? Okay, that was the early question. They came there looking for the body of Christ, knowing he was dead. When they get to the tomb, what do they find? They find that the tomb is empty. 
they don't automatically say, and, and look, we read it historically, right? We read it as history. You would think that after all the miracles of Christ that they had seen, that when they walk into the tomb and don't see the body of the Savior there, what is your first initial response to think? They're going to say, he's risen just like he said, right? But what is the response of these women? They're perplexed. They're bothered. They're disturbed. Even Peter comes a little bit later, soon after this account. And he runs into the, to the tomb and he looks inside and he sees the body is missing. But it says that he goes away perplexed. Later in Luke 24, what does it say? The two on the road to Emmaus refer to Peter's coming to the tomb after the resurrection. He's confirmed that Christ is not there. But what do they say? But his body he did not see. Meaning what? Even the fact that Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb was ample evidence for the early disciples of the resurrection. Why? Because the claim to a physical, bodily resurrection from the grave to the early hearers was unbelievable and unreasonable. So, there is an angelic witness for these women. Verse 4. While they wondered about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And then this reminder. Remember how he told you while he was with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise again. And then what happens? Like this. It says, Then... They remembered his words. Folks, what does that mean? It means that when they heard the accounts of the resurrection, they were impossible and unimaginable. But when they saw that the body of Christ was no longer in the grave, and they hear the reminder from the angelic, supernatural witness of God, what happens in their hearts? They remember the words of Christ. The plausible explanation for them was somebody took the body. God's explanation was, he is risen from the dead, just as he said. And then the lights go on in the hearts of these believers. And a confirmation of the resurrection of Christ is given. When they then, verse 9, came back from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and all the others. And here's what I want you to notice. They come back, faces lit like light. Jesus Christ's body is not in the grave. An angelic witness from heaven has come saying that he is indeed risen from the dead. They come back thinking the disciples are going to be what? Happy. They're going to be delighted that God is at work in this situation. But verse 11, they did not believe the women. Why? Because their words seemed to them like, New International says, like nonsense like words coming from a fevered mind, irrational, unbelievable, unimaginable. Isn't that amazing? The disciples who had heard the promise of the resurrection heard the account of it. And their first response, the disciples' first response is pure skepticism. The two on the road to Emmaus, if you look ahead into chapter 24, verse 19, notice what it says. Verse 19, chapter 24. Jesus is walking along the road with them. He has veiled his presence from them. They start explaining to him the story about Christ. Their perplexity doesn't know about the crucifixion of Christ. And they explain about the crucifixion. And at the end of that explanation, here's what they say. 
It is the third day. But his body we have not seen. It is the third day. But his body we have not seen. Now, when Jesus approached him, what did he notice? He noticed that they were downcast, that they had a long face, that they were perplexed, they were disturbed. Why? Their Savior was dead. And they are deeply troubled by that. Their response to resurrection accounts is one of skepticism. But the disciples moved from skepticism to belief. Look at ahead in chapter 24 real quickly. Look ahead to verse 33. It says, They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. That is, after these two on the road to Emmaus heard about the resurrection of Christ, saw the risen Lord. And this is the tipping point. They see not only the empty tomb, they have encountered the resurrected Savior. And when they encounter the resurrected Savior, their whole world changes dramatically. These two men go running back to Jerusalem. They find the eleven, and those who were with them assembled together, and they said, it is true. The Lord has risen. He has appeared to Simon. Then the two told them all that had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when they broke bread. Now, folks, here's the question I have for you this morning. These disciples' first response to the resurrection account is skepticism. What is it that moves them from skepticism to full-on faith and full-on belief? It is this. It is a resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And the question I want to ask you this morning is this. What difference does it make in our lives for the church if Jesus is raised or not raised? Does it make a difference for us in terms of what we believe, in terms of how we live? And I want to argue along with the Apostle Paul that it makes a profound difference. I want you to look ahead with me to the beginning of Acts. Acts chapter 1. You just turn ahead there real quickly. Acts chapter 1. Another book that is written by Luke, the apostle and doctor. Why do you hear his words at the beginning of Acts chapter 1? Because this account of the resurrection is so important and crucial. Luke takes up to write a book called the book of Acts under the inspiration of the Spirit. In verse 1 he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. Verse 3, and this is crucial as a statement concerning the resurrection. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now here's the question I want to ask you. Why does Jesus have to give them many convincing proofs concerning his resurrection? Because of the nature of the resurrection. It would not be a a believable or imaginable event. And so Jesus, for the sake of his disciples and for the early church, appears to them over a period of 40 days on numerous occasions in numerous settings so that his resurrection would be historically believed. That's why he did it. He knew the struggle of the disciples and he came to meet that need. Do you find that in your life? That Jesus knows your struggle? with belief, with trusting Him. And so He comes into your life in very specific ways to demonstrate His power, His authority, and His work in your life. 
then these two questions in light of this account about the resurrection. And you may even want to wrap into your thinking 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 3, where the Apostle Paul says that Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared for over 40 days, and in one instance, to over 500 witnesses in one account. Okay? And then Paul says this, if you doubt me, most of them are still alive, and you can go check it out for yourself. And here's the question. Would Paul say that? If there was no way to validate what he just said, and he's arguing for the plausibility and believability and facts of the resurrection, would he say, there are 500 people who saw him at one time, and you can go speak to them because most of them are still alive? Would he say that if the resurrection of Christ had not occurred? I think the answer to that is very, very clear, isn't it? He would not make that case. Paul then, in 1 Corinthians 15, goes on to say this, and it answers the question about the importance of the resurrection. Paul says, in verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sin, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost, and if only in this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all people to be most pitied. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying we are the sorriest lot of people on the face of the earth if we live our lives proclaiming something that we know is not true. And if Christ is not risen from the dead, here's what Paul says. This is all a hoax. It is all a hoax. But that leads us to another question. Okay? If it is all a hoax, then how do you account for the dramatic change in the life of the disciples and the early church and the impact that the early church has on the ancient world? And to answer that question, I just want you quickly to turn with me to Acts chapter 4. You have to turn to the book of Acts chapter 4. This is the account of Peter after Pentecost. He is preaching the gospel of Christ in power, in confidence, and with great courage. And we know Peter, right? Peter was the one who was always quick to fly off the handle with words, always had something to say in a moment. And when push came to shove, Peter tended to fall down. That's his history. He falls down. On the eve of the crucifixion, his words are, I will not deny you. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, tonight you'll deny me three times. After the crucifixion of Christ, Peter, along with the other disciples, are locked in an upper room. Forty days later, they are unleashed with great power. They are men that are transformed. And here's what you have to ask the question in regards to. What accounts for that life-altering, life-transforming change? What accounts for people moving from weakness to power? What accounts for that? Now, you, you really only have two plausible arguments here. One is, the disciples of Christ got together in their fear after the historic, undeniable death of Christ and created a story about the resurrection that they knew wasn't true and that lie transformed their lives. That's one option. Okay? On the other side of the coin, you have this option. And I think this is what Paul argues so clearly. And I think it's what accounts for the change in the life of Peter, the apostle of Christ. The other account is the unbelievable and unimaginable 
had happened. The disciples' natural response to accounts of the resurrection would be skepticism. They would find it unbelievable. That is exactly the way the accounts are written. And then they experience some type of transformation, are empowered from on high, have courage, go out and speak the words of Christ, and just in the book of Acts alone, you will find that two of them are martyred because they preach the resurrection of Christ. James and Stephen. And Stephen, when he dies, here's what he says. Looking up into heaven, he says, I see one standing like the Son of Man. A direct reference to who? To Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul bitterly opposed the church of Christ. He stood by when Stephen was stoned. He heard the testimony of Stephen that I am dying because I believe that the Savior who was crucified in Jerusalem has indeed risen from the dead. And I am willing to put my life on the line for that truth. Do you realize it was only weeks later until the Apostle Paul was converted from a raving lunatic who critiqued and destroyed and killed believers to a man who now said he is indeed risen from the dead. Here's the question. How do you account for that? How does that make sense? How does someone go from profound, disturbing unbelief to a place of laying down their life for the cause of Christ? How do you account for that? And you have two possible explanations. Paul believed and created a lie. The apostles believed and created a lie. For Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, just as he said. Now, I would argue from Acts chapter 4 that the effect of the resurrection on the disciples is predictable if Christ is raised. And I believe that that is the clear account of Scripture. I want you to look with me in Acts chapter 4 at verses 2 and 3. They were, this, this speaking about the religious leadership in verse 1. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, that message that Christ was risen from the dead was unacceptable to the religious establishment. So, verse 3, they seized Peter and John because it was evening and put them in jail until the next day. Verses 8 through 10. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, now he's been called to stand in front of them. Give an account of yourself, Peter. Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and we are asked how he was healed, then you should know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. Okay? The first thought I want to give you, just three concluding thoughts. The resurrection of Christ produced profound courage in significantly weak people. Peter was, in a sense, a strong man, but when push came to shove, Peter found himself falling down. Now Peter is alive, he is full of power in the Spirit of God, and he is proclaiming the resurrection of Christ from the dead as the life-altering message that he has personally experienced. I think the only way to account for that kind of courage in a normally weak person 
is the resurrection of Christ. John 20 and verse 19 says, after the death of Christ, that the disciples were locked in the upper room for fear of the Jews. As they contemplated the consequences of their faith and their relationship with Jesus, they locked themselves in a room. After they saw the resurrected Christ, they launched out into the streets in public and gave a testimony to the cause and crucifixion of the Savior, Jesus Christ. They were changed. Acts 17, 6. Here's their testimony. Those men that have turned the world upside down have come here. Folks, how do you account for a small movement of average individuals transforming the world? I believe the answer is Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Verses 18 through 20. Another account of Peter. <clears throat> their desire is to stop them from speaking the name of Christ. Verse 18. Then they called them in again, Peter and John, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Isn't that beautiful? Peter's response is, we, we can't stop speaking about it. Why? Because the unbelievable and unimaginable happened. And it was transforming the life of the early church. It promoted truly courageous and sacrificial service. That's why the Apostle Paul, towards the end of his life in Philippians 1, can say, from prison, for me to live is what? It's Christ. And if living is Christ and Christ is alive, then dying is what? Paul says dying is gain. Folks, what happens? When you understand that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and you know that his resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, guarantees your resurrection, what do you then have to fear? You see, that's Paul's perspective. It's why Pascal said this. He said, I believe witnesses who get their throat slit. You understand what he's saying? Do you realize that a majority of the early apostles were martyred because they believed and proclaimed the resurrection of Christ? And when push comes to shove, Pascal says this. He says, I believe those who get their throats slit. That's how you know that they really believe. Folks, when you look at the early disciples, here's what you find. Weak men who are by an event transformed into self-sacrificing servants of the cause of Christ. Why? Because they knew that this life was not all there is. That after this life, there is the hope of a resurrection and in, we are in God's presence forever. That truth transformed the disciples of Christ. And I believe this. That truth should change us today, shouldn't it? If you serve a risen Savior who is in full control of your life, who reversed the irreversible, who did the unimaginable, who demonstrated the unbelievable in His resurrection. And the question we need to ask ourselves from time to time is, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? The resurrection of Christ is a life transforming event. And the last thing that it means from this passage of Scripture is this. It means that Jesus Christ is the unique 
and only Savior from sin. He is the unique and only Savior from sin. This passage leads us directly into a verse that is one of the most profound statements about Jesus Christ being the only way to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father whom we have sinned against. Look at verse 12. After saying in verse 10 that it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified but whom Christ raised from the dead. Verse 12. Salvation. And what, what Luke means by salvation is the forgiveness of sin and the hope of life. The forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. Salvation is found in no one else. What is Peter saying? He's saying, apart from Christ, there is no hope. And believe me, folks, please understand this. Peter did not find hope in a dead Savior, in a lying Savior, in a Savior who was deranged and claimed that he would rise from the dead. No. In fact, historically, you will find this. Of all the messiahs that came into the first century, only one ever claimed that if you killed him, he would rise again. You can go back and check that out historically. No alleged Messiah, and there were many in that time, not one ever claimed that he would raise from the dead. Why? Because it's impossible. It's unimaginable. It's unbelievable. And if you are going to go out on the limb and say, you put me to death in three days, I will rise again. If you don't come through on that promise, what happens? Everybody that's followed you, everybody that's believed you, everybody that's seen your alleged miracles sees them exposed for what they really are. Frauds. But the disciples come back and say, you know what? No. He is risen just as he said. He is no fraud. He is no fake. He is no liar. Peter's testimony of Christ here. And this is what he puts his life on the line for. Salvation is found in no one else. So what other message is there for us to proclaim, folks? If, if there is no hope in anyone apart from Jesus Christ, why would you try religion to get to God when there is a way through a person? Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we, and notice what the New International says here, whereby we must be saved. My dear friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, I would argue this case for you. Jesus lived. Jesus Christ died a brutal death that he said, Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, was the redeeming price, the freedom price for sinners. He died on a cross after living a perfect life to pay the price for your sin. He was buried. And on the third day, he fulfilled his promise. He did the unimaginable. He did the unbelievable. He paid the price for your sin, and he rose from the dead on the third day to prove that he is Savior and Lord. And folks, this morning, I, can I beg this of you? If you've never trusted Christ, I'm not saying that Jesus is the only way. Jesus makes that claim. Jesus validates that claim by the most unbelievable and incredible working miracle ever recorded. He was raised from the dead. And he was proven to be the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Why do we say that he's the only way? Because he is risen indeed, just as he said. He is the son of God who paid the price for your sin so that you could have a personal relationship with the Father. This morning, the question I lay before you is have you trusted him? Realize this. You may be sitting here this morning and say, I'm in it too deep. My sin is too great. God can't forgive me. I'm here to tell you this. If Jesus Christ could conquer death, he can handle your sin. He can forgive you and cleanse you from it. If you would simply be willing to bow your head quietly before him and say, Lord Jesus, today, the sense of my sin is present. I know that I am a sinner, but I believe that you died, that you were buried, and that you rose again the third day, just as the scripture said you would. And I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you are the great Messiah. If you've never trusted him, he can change your life. And in the midst this morning of your personal struggles, if you're struggling with doubt, with believing the unbelievable, with reckoning with living under a Savior who indeed has conquered death, if you're reckoning with what does that mean, what it means is this. There is no circumstance in your life that he cannot address and handle with you. There is no issue that he by his grace cannot conquer. There is no circumstance in your life that he cannot address. In the midst of your struggles, may I call you, brother, sister in Christ, may I call you to take your burden, your concern, and lay it at his incredibly capable feet. Cast your cares upon him. Because this morning, he cares for you. And he has the power to do it. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58 brings us to the conclusion of Paul's chapter on the resurrection. Paul says, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, and this is his challenge to the church, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Because we serve a risen Savior who one day not only promised that he would raise from the dead, but he also promised that he would come again and that we would stand before him. And if you know him personally, you will be welcomed into his presence. And if you don't know him, separated from him forever. This morning, dear friend, we all have a choice. We have to look at the resurrection of Christ and say, I believe or I don't believe. The result of that choice has an eternal consequence. The Bible tells us that there is one Savior and His name is Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads together this morning in prayer.